You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Hi, everyone. Good morning or afternoon, depending on where you are. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Michelle, the compliance leader here at IMA Bolton. Uh, Happy New Year. I don't know if I could still say that, but this is the first 2024 monthly webinar, so I'm just going to say it anyway. If this is your first time joining, I really welcome you to the call. Most of you probably already know that we'll spend the next 30 minutes together as I go over a few updates with you, and then we go into question and answer mode. Camayo's Compliance Talk was created to be meaningful to our audience. So do submit those questions. I work with, and the IMA compliance team works with employers on a daily basis. We have these practical discussions with employers. We are not giving legal advice. And I will say always check in often for updates or new legislation impacting your group health plan. Our objective today is to help employers address or solve compliance current concerns and issues. Ask Michelle was created to answer questions most meaningful to you, our audience member. So keep that in mind as we go along. I welcome your questions. We're going to start off by letting you know, you know, IMA's compliance team, I just referenced that. I just want you to know we have a robust team. It's not just me, although the name of the monthly webinar is Camayo's Compliance Talk, and I'm there, Michelle Camayo, you can see me on the screen. But we also have a lot of hardworking team members. So we have two attorneys, myself, Casey, Michelle, Kari, and Mika. It's really a great group of people, and we have compliance leaders in almost every market, every geographic area around the U.S. So it's amazing. I love working with them, and they help me prepare for these talks as well. Compliance chatter. This is where I go over a few updates or anything that I've noticed that more and more employers are asking me the past month. This is where I like to go over that and just give you a little bit of info regarding that. The first thing, ACA reporting. We all know that this has been going on for so many years that now I'm hoping it's more routine than anything else. But I also noticed that Sometimes employers don't realize when they cross the threshold of having to comply with the ACA reporting and the pay or play penalties. So all applicable large employers must e-file by April 1st. This is the first year where virtually all applicable large employers have to move from paper to e-file. Some of you are thinking, well, I was e-filing anyway, and that's good. You don't need to change anything about that. But there are several smaller employers, I would say, that were doing it by paper and you can't do that anymore. So I just wanted to make sure everyone knew that, that you have to e-file. If you're an employer or an organization that was paper filing in prior years and you're searching for a way to e-file, we do have a recommendation for a vendor that I would say is the least expensive out in the market. And the reason they're the least expensive is because you're you can buy down to a very basic service that gives you access to e-filing because they already had that set up instead of having to go through 
you know, your IT team setting up a connection with the IRS, which I can tell you, that's not something you want to do. That was a word about ACA reporting. Then the new higher compliance notice has been updated for the marketplace exchange. We were waiting on that one. The one we were using said it was outdated as of June of 2023. They finally released a new one. If you didn't catch that, you'll want to go online, find that compliance notice, the marketplace exchange notice, and then replace it with the one that's currently in your new higher onboarding packet. IMA also sent out an article with a participant notices and disclosures guide. So some employers like to have that on hand. It is specific to employee benefits and specific to federal regula regulations, but it is it's really nice because it tells you which notices are required at what point in an employer's tenure, whether it's the new hire, whether it's when they're eligible for benefits, whether it's upon termination, and more than I'm sure I haven't said here. In Oregon, for paid leave Oregon, the contributions rate is the same for January or for 2024, but the taxable wage cap has increased. So if you're responsible for payroll or responsible for these state tax programs, just know that you should have adjusted that taxable wage cap or someone should have to reflect that on payroll. Next is California LTC law, so or tax, California long-term care tax. And I should say, it, when I say that, what I mean is the potential. And I've gotten so many questions on this. This is why I often refer back to it. No matter what any bad actors might lead you to believe by sending very strongly worded emails or very strongly worded voicemails, California does not have a long-term care program. There isn't a deadline on the horizon, and we could speculate all day long about whether or not we think it's going to happen in 2024, 2025, or years after that, or will it happen at all? We don't know the appetite for legislators to increase taxes. I know a lot of us don't want that, so something to keep in mind, there is no California LCC program. New York considered one, in case you're wondering if other states have thought about it. New York did consider one, it has not gone anywhere. Minnesota proposed a bill, doesn't look like that is going anywhere. And several other states have is too, as you can see on the screen. Um, some state legislators have shown, have shown interest, right? But there are no proposed bills to date for these other states, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Colorado, Utah, Oregon. It's kind of being mulled over at a high level, but no proposed bills, which means, you know, those states would not expect to see anything in the next couple of years without a proposed bill. Oh, gosh, paid sick leave. This is something that I know is a pain point for employers. I know it's a problem that we're that states are passing all of these different paid sick leave laws, as well as even some cities or counties within the state. And it is a problem that needs to be solved. We were all hoping the federal government would pass a paid sick leave law and uh, that would kind of mitigate the activity going on at the state level. But that hasn't happened. I don't know if it's going to happen. It doesn't seem like it's going to. So states keep taking it into their own hands. If you didn't see California expanded their paid sick leave starting January 1, Massachusetts made major updates to their sick leave. Illinois' paid leave law went into effect January 1. Uh, check out Cook County and City of Chicago if that applies to your organization. 
and Minnesota's paid leave law went into effect January 1 as well. Another compliance update, I just wanted to let you know that I found an article that Fisher Phillips published. And for those of you who are um, longtime listeners, you know that Fisher Phillips is one of my go-to employment law firms. They've been a fantastic partner of mine, not only mine, but a fantastic partner of IMA here in California, and they have national offices. And they are re they're really great about uh, partnering with us and helping us answer employment law questions versus you know group benefits. They published a new year to-do list. If you like a checklist, I encourage you to check check out that checklist. It's um, a checklist of employment law categories, including wage including wage and hour changes. Before we go into the Q and A, a reminder that you can sign up for IMA compliance alerts or our newsletters, or I should say, and our newsletters. I've linked the sign-up page to sign up for our compliance alerts. So when you get a copy of the slides, you can click on that and you can sign up there and you'll get all of our alerts going forward. And if you want to view the past IMA compliance articles, then I've linked that web page as well. Okay, I'm going to look for questions from the audience members. So feel free to submit if you like. If you don't have any questions right now, feel free to just continue listening on. We have gotten a lot of questions with regards to ACA reporting on what line 14 and line 16 codes to use. That's normal. So the IMA compliance team from January to about March, we spent a lot of our time looking at and reading all of these unique examples that employers are bringing up to us and then consulting on what codes to use. And we got a great question that I feel like others in this employer's position may benefit from hearing. So I have it here. The question that we received is, we have a former employee who worked until May of 2023 but did not work after April. So May 1st, they, uh, let's say, resigned. They used the 1A code in line 14 from January to April. Okay, that makes sense. They had an offer of coverage, and that offer of coverage was um, using the FPL safe harbor. That's why you would use a 1A. Then they switched over to 1H in May. That's no offer of coverage. What line 16 code do we use with 1H? Now, I know we want to give straightforward, easy answers, but a question like this one, we do not have easy answers. And that's why I wanted to go over this is because I wanted to give you an idea of the nuance that goes into reporting. So, all right, so to recap, we have a former employee, they worked until April 30th, and then they didn't work after April. It's 1A from January through April, very straightforward. Then they change it to 1H. My question is, well, was this employee offered COBRA? Because if this person was offered COBRA, as they would if they terminated employment for anything other than gross misconduct, for the most part, then 1H is not the appropriate code, because 1H says no offer of coverage. But if you offer COBRA as an organization, that's an offer of coverage. So you would need to report the the, co the tier he was eligible to continue. So, you know, you would use 1B for employee child, um, or excuse me, for single coverage, you'd use 1B for employee child, you'd use 1C and so forth. So, you know, it's something to think about. If you make an offer of coverage to an employee, 
or former employee. The code isn't one age. It is actually corresponding to the tier of, of uh, coverage that they were offered on COBRA. So now that we've established that, then we say, okay, what 16 line six code, line 16 code would you use? If he enrolled in COBRA, you use a, T, a 2C enrolled in coverage in line 16. So that avoids any potential for penalty. If the employee waived COBRA, then it will show 2B to indicate he wasn't a full-time employee that month. All right, and that's all assuming the employer doesn't utilize the look back method or they weren't in a full-time stability period. That's good. That gets very detailed oriented to go further into that. I have the answer here, uh, but we'll move on to the next question. And by the way, shout out to Casey, one of our compliance leaders here at INA, because that was his question and that he received. And this is his answer. Casey is absolutely brilliant. If you've ever had Casey check over your ACA codes and, and your reporting before you hit submit, then you're very, very fortunate. He is fantastic. I have a question on this one, a follow-up question. So I'll go ahead and read that. How long would an employer use the COBRA offered codes in series one, given COBRA is offered for 18 months? I love that question. Thank you for asking it. If an employee did not work for any month in 2023, you wouldn't report on them at all because they weren't a full-time employee. The only reason that we're including any COBRA offer code, and it's really just an offer of coverage, it's not specific to COBRA, is because this employer had to report this individual because they were full-time at, at any point in 2023. So any, you would stop reporting on an, a former employee uh, if they were not working any full-time hours in any particular calendar year. The next question we received, I wanted to put this one out there because not only did I get this from one employer, I got this question from about 10 different organizations the last month, and then I even got it from our internal IMA colleagues. And the reason why is because this company just seems to have gone on a marketing tear. They they seem to be emailing anybody and everybody they can, you know, towards their marketing efforts. And that's why I wanted to get this out there. So the question is, can you help us understand how this vendor is able to provide immediate FICA savings? And the name of the vendor or the website they're using is ficasave.com. But I, I want to say this up front. They aren't able to provide immediate FICA savings, but it doesn't stop them from marketing to every email list they can get their hands on. And you can maybe you can hear a little bit of frustration in my voice. And that is because the IRS has warned companies like this many times, many times over the past couple decades. And the IRS keeps saying, these aren't compliant, these aren't compliant. And these companies still pop up every year, every two years, every three years with new marketing, new branding, and a new way of presenting their data to hopefully, you know, get someone to bite and say, oh, okay, the, yeah, let's do this. I always say, if it sounds too good to be true with the IRS, it absolutely is. So those are, those are sort of it. That's the phrase I always start off, off with. But I want you to know why it's too good to be true. And it's fairly simple. So I'm just going to go over this program. Okay. 
based on, the program is based on voluntary pre-tax indemnity plans. So the company, FICA Save or uh, CHAMP, I think that there's another one out there called CHAMP. The company's theory is that you can pay pre-tax towards the indemnity plan premium, so pre-tax from your paycheck, and then get non-taxable payouts. Okay, so see where the savings becomes. It's like, hey, I'm gonna pre, I'm gonna pay pre-tax for this indemnity plan, and then these companies will give the employee money each month on a pre-tax basis, so a non-taxable payout. So pre-tax plus pre-tax. Well, the IRS is not down with pre-tax plus pre-tax unless it meets very, very specific parameters. And the problem is any indemnity plan purchased with pre-tax dollars that says the employee or that pays the employee without regard for an actual qualified medical expense needs to be treated as taxable comp. That's where all of these plans or all of these vendors go wrong. They're paying the employee out a monthly amount, so a monthly payout, but they're paying it without regard to any actual medical expense that was incurred. And the IRS has been so clear that that is not compliant. You cannot do that. And we wrote about this. Um, and we also wrote about not only we wrote about how, you know, wellness program, they call them wellness programs or most of them do. Sometimes they come out with new marketing and they call it something else like, oh, FICA savings. Um, but the, the IRS said, we're not going to tolerate this any longer. We're making it super clear. We're going to come after these companies that are doing this. So we wrote about that a few different times. And I'll link those articles there if you wanted to read it after this. So indemnity plan premiums paid for pre-tax result in all benefit payouts as taxable. That's that's what it is. It will not change. And that destroys the FICA saves business model. <laughs> this comment, by the way, is from Casey. Uh, Casey said it was always wrong. But now the IRS has made it super clear how wrong they've been. And, um, and, and I'm just, you know, I'm just not a fan of, of companies and vendors out there misleading our employers. I'm not a fan of that, so I feel very passionate about this, and I hope that clarified it for you. And now we, we know some employers will take up this type of program, and it, that is, we support employers who do that as long as the employer knows that they are absolutely at risk for an IRS audit, and that if they were audited by the IRS, that they would have to incur some significant penalties, um, interest payments, as well as turning all of this pre-tax amount into, you know, taxable income. All right, I've got another question here that I received. This was pretty simple question, which what I think is a fairly straightforward answer. Can an employer pay for an employee's individual Medicare plan? We get this a lot, and understandably, we get this a lot. It, it can be much less expensive to simply reimburse or pay for someone's individual Medicare plan, since they're Medicare eligible anyway, rather than take the claims on uh, at the plan or the, for the plan. So I, I totally understand that, but CMS also understands that. They know that, and they don't want employers pushing employees to the government plan versus keeping them on the group plan. And that's why they created Medicare secondary payer rules 
that prohibits certain size employers from incentivizing employees to sign up for Medicare. Incentivizing is very clearly defined as paying for someone's individual Medicare plan. Unfortunately, that is the case. And then further, we also have to worry about another compliance issue, which is the ACA prohibits employers from reimbursing individual health plans. It's called an employer payment plan. And those, uh, uh, those by default are you know, not compliant. And they come with pretty hefty penalties there. So if, if you're reimbursing for an individual health plan or a Medicare, Medicare plan, just keep those things in mind. That is not compliant. And this is from MSP rules, Medicare secondary payer rules, that prohibit the employer from incentivizing employees to sign up for Medicare. That's for employers that have over 20 employees. They're, they cannot reimburse for Medicare or individual insurance for that matter. But the 20 employee threshold is an MSP rule. And for the Affordable Care Act and not reimbursing individual health plans, that's for all size employers. If you're a small employer and you have less than 20 employees, then yes, you could reimburse for Medicare and you could incentivize employees to go on to Medicare. All right, we're going to finish up today probably right on time. This is really a 30-minute format every single month just to give you an idea of what's going on, what I've been hearing about from other employers in case that's helpful. And then I like to share any links or toolkits or anything I find. Then we go over Q&As. Oh, I got a fantastic question. Thank you for asking this. Before we get into our resources that I found over the past month or that we have, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take one more question. How do ICRAs, which are individual coverage HRAs, operate if employers cannot reimburse for individual health plans? Uh, yes, you have hit on the exception. And the reason why is right in the name, in ICRA, which that's an acronym and it's I-C-H-R-A. HRA is right there. The fact that the government uh, created a set of rules that allow HRAs to reimburse individual health care. Now, so if there is an employer out there that wants to reimburse individual health plans, you have to set up an ICRA. And ICRAs have very strict rules, very complex rules. So we don't see them often. And because you have to follow certain rules, you can't just offer an ICRA to everyone over 65. You would not be able to do that. So it's hard to design an ICRA to target Medicare eligible employees because the government already figured out that that's what employers would want to do. So they pretty much set the rules up so that it's very difficult to target um, Medicare eligible employees. But yes, that is the exception to this. You would have to set up an ICRA. And to do that, you would need plain documents and you would have to follow the rules with regards to ICRAs. And that's a whole conversation that one should have with their benefits broker. And I truly encourage anyone thinking about an ICRA, uh, reach out to your benefits broker, have that conversation, and they'll give you all the rules and the upsides and the downsides of that. Some resources I will leave you with today. I mentioned sign up for the IMA newsletter, which also also we distribute any type of compliance alerts. You can do that by clicking on this link. For IMA Bolton clients that have mineral, mineral is a great resource. I've been checking them out lately. And, you know, I always like to in the new year, what's new? What do they have that I can share with you? They have tons of, of sample forms and policies and paid sick leave charts and guides and trainings. 
you know, employee and supervisor trainings, including sexual harassment trainings. But they also have, I was looking this up, they have new hire toolkits that are state specific and termination toolkits that are state specific. That's pretty cool. They have a California one, a New York, a Colorado, Utah, Washington, and several other states that I saw too. So if you have a mineral login and that sounds like something you'd want to check out, you can log in to your mineral online portal and then just check out California new hire kit or Colorado new hire kit or termination kit. And that might help someone on your organization's HR team. We talked about these uh, medical leave laws or paid leave laws, sick leave laws by state and how it's causing an absolute pain for all employers who have multi-state uh, workers. So Mineral has a federal and medical leave laws by state. And for Fisher Phillips, one of my favorite employment law firms that operates across the entire U.S., I wanted to share some, some updates from them. They have a workplace law forecast. It's a flip book. D.C. has a new pay transparency law effective at the end of June of this year. So if you have employees or workers in D.C. or you do any hiring in D.C., rather, then you should check that one out. They also have a webinar on February 1st. It's more federal based, so it's not state specific for the most part. And they're going to go over regulations, changes and more. Again, that's Fisher Phillips. They're an employment law attorney that I myself and some of us here at IMA have partnered with over the years since COVID, actually. And they've been a great partner to us. Doesn't look like we have any more questions and we're out of time. I appreciate you joining and I will see you next time. Thanks, everyone.